real story, there is no real story. So my guess is that most people in Cape Town think they have some idea of the history of Boer Cup. You know, predominantly Muslim area above Betenkracht Street, originally home to slaves, famous for its unique, brightly painted colors, cobbled streets, and the best kusasters in Cape Town, right? Well, sort of. But after spending weeks looking into the history of Boer Cup, what I found was that the area's history is actually exponentially more complicated than we generally realize. And also that there's numbers of myths about the Boer Cup that urgently need busting. All the way like we Puka. All eyes on me like I'm Tupac. I'm leading my people like Musa. Everyone saying saluta. I was rolling with them killers feeling like I'm Michael Colleyani. You were sleeping with the fishes, we was eating curry and biryani. In Puka. You're listening to the story of Burkhap, a three-part series where we'll investigate some of its history, unravel a couple of myths, and try and discover the future of this iconic area on the slopes of Signal Hill in Cape Town, formerly known as the Cape Malay Quarter. In part one, we discuss Burkhap's history. We'll take a look at the original inhabitants of the Boer Cup, who probably aren't exactly who you expect, and find answers to the thorny questions of how the Boer Cup survived apartheid, demolitions, and why those houses are painted in bright colours. Part 2 will focus on the legacy businesses of Boer Cup, how some have died and others have survived. We'll speak to the owners of stores like Roxel Leather and Atlas Trading Company. And in part three, we'll talk about Borkab's heritage, status, gentrification, and try and determine the impact of these important changes for locals. This is part one, the history of Borkab. I am Haji Mohammed Dauji. And I'm Rebecca Davis. And we're your hosts. So, Beck, when you started looking into the history of Borkab, one of the things you decided you wanted to do was the same thing that thousands of tourists do in Cape Town every year. Take a free walking tour. I'm still not sure why. I mean, why couldn't we just cut straight to interviewing a legitimate expert in Boer Cup? You ask a good question, but there was method in my madness. I wanted to find out exactly what version of Boer Cup history was being fed to tourists on these very popular free walking tours in central Cape Town. Because I suspected that there would be a fair amount of misinformation about the Boer Cup being spread. In fairness, the tour actually wasn't that bad at all. But it also didn't take long for the Boer Cup half-truths to start. So here we are hovering around Whale Street, about eight German tourists, me, and our tour guide, who you'll hear now. The reason why I'm stopping here is just to explain to you how the work up, what it looks like, and what we're getting into. But does everybody understand what the work up actually is? Uppercut. Work, Wolfen in Dutch, literally means uppercut. Okay, now the Burkhub used to be much bigger than it is today. It stretched from almost the foothills of Table Mountain right down to the Waterkut. The Waterkut is right next to the waterfront. Today it's only about 0.34 square kilometers. But what makes it such a unique area is that there are 6,000 residents, of which about 95% are Muslim. South Africa has got a population of 54 million people, of which from that entire population, only 1.5% are Muslim. So that, that is what makes the Boer Park such a big area. Okay, 
going to go up this road now, turn right and stop in front of the oldest mosque in South Africa. So here's one of the most prevalent and hardest to shift myths about the Boer Cup, that most of its unique character stems from the fact that it has been an Islamic enclave since its establishment over 200 years ago. And this was a claim I found literally all over, including in well-respected academic journals. But hang on, you're surely not disputing that the character of the Boer Cup is basically Muslim. There are 10 mosques there, five Muslim burial grounds... And as a Muslim myself, I was definitely taught that the oldest mosque in South Africa was built in the Boer Cup. So you're surely not claiming that, you know, it has no Islamic presence, which stretches back centuries. No, no, everything you've just said is true. But what is not true is the idea that the Boer Cup was always only home to Muslims or even to only so-called coloured people. So the foremost historian of the Boer Cup was this amazing guy called Dr. Ahmad Davids. He was a Boer Cup local, sadly passed away in 2012. And this year he was awarded one of the country's top national honours, which is pretty cool. What Dr. Davids did was painstakingly go through the archival street records to find out who the inhabitants of Boer Cup were in time gone by. And what did he find? The first houses in Burkup, they were built for rent in the 1780s by this Dutch guy, Jan de Waal. He worked for the Dutch East India Company. So they were initially occupied by both white immigrants who worked in town and by the Mardijkers, who were free Muslims brought to the Cape for their skills and never enslaved. So slavery is abolished in Cape Town by the British in 1834. And the former slaves move from the slave lodge in town, where obviously they were effectively imprisoned, to the area above Badenkracht Street. And many of those former slaves were Muslim. But actually, Burkup becomes this vibrant, diverse community, which was racially mixed until well into the 20th century. Burkup, in my view, um, as Ahmad David himself and many other historians correctly said, that Burkup was never a Muslim area although it was always dubbed as the Malay quarter. That voice you just heard is Mohammed Khrunewald. He's a Boer Cup local, he's on the Boer Cup Civic Association, but he's also well known as a Boer Cup history buff. I mean, he really knows his stuff. And when I spoke to Mohammed, he made an interesting comparison. He said that if you think of Cape Town at the time when the city was being built, it might have been something like what Dubai is today. Cape Town in the 1600s, 1650, 52 onwards, were probably like modern-day Dubai. There's a modern city being built, or a city being built, and everyone just jumps ship to come to the Cape mm. for work. And so a lot of slaves were sent from the west coast of Africa, you know, political prisoners and so on and so forth. And Cape Town really made up a melting pot of, of people, Chinese, uh, quite a lot of Chinese. The fact that the Tanabaru, our first cemetery, a formal, formal cemetery, that was given to the Muslim community um, in 1807. That cemetery was given to the Muslim community and a portion was also given to the Chinese community. That's interesting. I mean, if you think of early Cape Town like that, of course it makes perfect sense that Burkhap would be this diverse community. It's this area with low-cost housing, it's super close to town, and the people who need to be closest to town are the ones who are literally building the city and servicing all its needs. Exactly. Ahmed David says that the Boer Cup was home to all these artisans, musicians, tailors, labourers, 
and they were from all over. So we associate Bokap primarily with the descendants of people brought to Cape Town from places like Java and Indonesia. But there were also Filipinos, Africans, Portuguese and Italian immigrants there. And mentioning Italians, by the way, reminds me that the name of Chiapini Street, which runs from the Burkarp down to what is today the Vatican, that is explained by the presence of Italian immigrants in the Burkarp. But in other regards, the presence of these other groups of people in the Burkarp has pretty much disappeared. And we heard Mohammed talking about the Tanabara Muslim Cemetery in Burkarp, which dates all the way back to 1807. So at what point in Borkop's history did all those mosques and burial grounds get established? Because as far as I know, you know, initially it was illegal to practice Islam in the Cape, which is why nearly the Muslims had to use that quarry there above um, Borkop for open-air prayers. My people are very enterprising. You mentioned earlier, correctly, that one of the reasons why the Boer Cup holds huge significance for South African Muslims is that it was literally the birthplace of Islam in South Africa. And the right to practice Islam freely was won by struggle. This is what Ahmad Davids wrote about it. We got our friend Salahuddin to read Davids' words. For 150 years after they arrived, the Muslims of Cape Town were denied the freedom to worship Almighty Allah in public. Their religious activities were curtailed by laws threatening them with imprisonment and even death. They were denied citizenship and were treated with harshness and ignominy, yet they managed to establish Islam in this country. You know, if women could stand in front at the mosque, I would definitely go more. The fact that you have mosques to go to is really thanks to the efforts of one remarkable individual who was this Indonesian prince called Tuan Guru, brought to the Cape by the Dutch as a political prisoner, incarcerated on Robben Island. He gets released and then when the British briefly take over the Cape in 1794, he somehow wins permission to establish South Africa's first mosque, the Awal Mosque on Dorp Street, still there today, which Tuan Guru declares will exist, quote, for as long as the world stands. Well, gentrifiers better watch out, otherwise tickets for that. My favorite story about Tuan Guru is that his voice was so clear and resonant that when he gave the call for prayer from an open window at the mosque in Dorp Street, his voice could be heard in Simonstown. In case it's a good thing Cape Talk didn't exist back then, otherwise people would be phoning in like crazy to complain. <laughs> okay, moving on swiftly. So... Let's hop back on my free walking tour. And here we've stopped just above Bismillah's restaurant in the Burkhub and our guide is explaining the religious density of the area. This small area, there are 10 mosques. There are five Muslim burial grounds. Two on Signal Hill, three inside the Burkhub. One of them is called Tana Bara, which is the burial ground of Tuan Guru, the man that started the first mosque. Even during the District 6 removals and the bulldozing, the apartheid government, for some reason, never touched houses of religion. They did not bulldoze the mosques, synagogues or churches. So in a sense, maybe the 10 mosques in this area completely threw them off. Their plans out, whichever way, they literally turned around and declared this a Muslim-only area. So it's quite interesting to think that this area remained intact. All of that is part of the Burkhaw. It's just really this area that's painted. Everybody know the story about Devil's Peak? It's just a short little story that comes from the slaves. There was a Dutch gentleman called Jan van der Hunks. 
and he used to smoke his pipe and smoke up a storm in, in the house. So his wife chased him out. Okay, now we're getting to the good stuff because I'm hoping we're going to get an answer to the number one most mysterious question about the book. Why did the apartheid government let it stand during apartheid when an area just down the hill, District 6, was raised to the ground? Mm. It seems like your slightly untrustworthy tour guide seems to be suggesting that apartheid authorities spared Bokap because on some level they were reluctant to touch religious institutions. And like we've just learned, Bokap clearly had religious institutions for days. So... Again, there's maybe a grain of truth in what the tour guide was saying, in that the apartheid government, as we know, were devout Christian nationalists themselves. And they did have, you know, they seemed to have some degree of respect for some religious communities and maybe even a degree of superstition when it came to you know, messing with institutions of religion. Mohammed Krunewald has another personal theory, which is that it suited the apartheid authorities to conserve Burkhap as a kind of proof to the world that they supposedly allowed people of colour to live in peace right in the centre of Cape Town. If you look at what the apartheid government's agenda was, you simply say, well, we, we of course have the first mosque and the first cemeteries and so on, quite a rich history in this particular area. So, so it was useful for them to keep the work up intact, also to show that we are not an apartheid state. It's black people with their own cultural identity living right in the city of Cape Town. That is unsurprisingly pretty dark. You know, this idea that Borkarp was serving as a kind of pretend show suburb for the apartheid government's benevolence. It is dark, but I'm afraid to say the real story is in a way even darker. The whole idea that the Borkarp was left untouched during apartheid is itself a myth. The Group Areas Act made the Borkarp a Muslim-only area for the first time in its history. From 1957 onwards, forced removals did take place from Borkarp, of everyone who is not designated a so-called Malay, the apartheid classification for Cape Muslims. Okay, so I know everything. So I did know that because I've heard stories of people converting to Islam to apply for residency in Burkhab at the time. But what all of this doesn't explain is, again, why the apartheid government would be willing to leave this prime area of real estate right there in town for people of colour. They weren't usually so accommodating when it came to handing out desirable suburbs to people who weren't white. Yeah, to say the least. This is where it gets even darker, because we have to introduce the strange man called I.D. Duplessis, who I think is best known actually as an Afrikaans writer. But he was to become an apartheid administrator. And from the 1930s onwards, he had pushed, together with Burkhap leaders, to preserve the Burkhap as an important Malay heritage site. That seems weird for a guy working for a crazily racist regime. For a white guy, yeah. That's the thing, it was weird. And it wasn't the case that Duplessis was some insanely progressive, non-racist guy. His reasons for helping the Cape Muslims in this respect were actually deeply problematic. From his writings, we know that Duplessis had this exotic, almost fetishistic view of the group he called Malays, who he viewed as this quaint, spiritual colourful, docile people who were a cut above all the other people of colour in the Cape. So if the Burkhap had social problems, Duplessis blamed them on the influence of black Africans and non-Muslim coloured people. He said that they were bringing in alcohol and dakha to the Burkhap and that the noble Malays needed to be spared these dangerous external influences. And the best way to accomplish that was to ethnically cleanse the area of all non-Muslims. Wow. 
It's come just turn the lights off because it's darker than load shedding in here. It is. Nobody seems to know exactly how many non-Muslim people were removed from the Boer Cup at that time. I asked Mohammed Kronewald and he said the relevant records don't seem to exist. But we do know that the city of Cape Town was forced by national government to, and I'm quoting, provide lists of the racial designations of Boer Cup inhabitants and to inform the department of its plans to resettle those other than Malays elsewhere, end quote. We never hear the stories of the black or non-Muslim mm. coloured people who were forcibly moved out of Bokap. And I think, you know, especially in today's political times, it raises an interesting question. Was there ever a land restitution claim by one of those people in modern Bokap? Yeah, I've never heard of that. But, I mean, there's no doubt it would throw up a massive headache about how to deal with that. But we're not done with ID Duplessis just yet. I've been done with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Duplessis happens to be mates with the apartheid community development minister in the mid-1960s, who is one P.W. Boerta, who obviously went on to be state president. And because Duplessis has the ear of Boerta, and Duplessis has this weird fixation on the native character of the Malays, P.W. Boerta intervenes to ensure a conservation program is implemented to carry out restoration work on the Boer Cup. And what those apartheid restoration projects did to some degree was actually subtly change the landscape and architecture of the Boer Cup. Which brings me to another Boer Cup myth. So tell me what you picture when I tell you to think about a typical Boer Cup house. So, I mean, I got eyes, right? So <laughs> I picture what everyone else pictures. There's, you know, they're simple, um, no gables, no external frilliches, flat roofs, colourful. yeah. Right, so some of the original Burkup dwellings did look like that. But others were typical of the architecture of the 18th and 19th century, which is to say that they were built in Cape Dutch or Georgian style. Oh, so like um, the, the Burkup Museum on Whale Street. Right. With the gables, it's an ornate building. Yeah, that's the one. So that, that house, the one that houses this Burkup Museum today was actually the original home of Jan de Waal, the guy who built the first labourers' cottages in the Burkup. But obviously for himself, he wanted something more fancy. So that's why that building is typical early Cape Dutch. But the earliest houses in the area were even built with thatched roofs, which is not a feature we associate with the Burkup at all today. No, because they'll stick it on your brand. Um, <laughs> jokes. So what's the mercy we're talking about? That all Burkup houses were originally built in that simple flat roof style we associate with the area today. Yeah. The architecture was actually much more diverse than that. And some architecture academics have suggested that what that apartheid era conservation project did was prioritize that style of architecture to fit this romanticized ideal of how the so-called Malays lived. And what about the bright colors of the houses? I mean, everyone seems to think that it's a very traditional feature of Boer Cup houses, but I'm pretty sure that Dulux wasn't delivering gallons of fluorescent paint to the Cape Colony <laughs> in the 18th century. Yeah. So when I spoke to Mohammed Kronewald, I was desperate. I begged him to give me a firm answer to the question of why Boer Cup houses are painted so brightly. Because by that stage in my research, I'd heard so many conflicting explanations and most of them totally implausible. So I said, Mohammed, please just give me the real story. And he basically laughed in my face. <laughs> uh, the real story, there is no real story. What does that mean, there's no real story? 
Well, it means there are a lot of stories, but most of them are clearly nonsense. One is that freed slaves painted their houses bright colors to celebrate their emancipation. But as you have wisely pointed out, they didn't have that kind of paint technology available in the 19th century. Hashtag fake news. That's it. I also know, you know, a lot of photos are obviously in black and white, um, so you can't really see. But, you know, I'm pretty sure I've never seen a photo of the Boer Cup from the olden days where the houses even look vaguely like they're brightly painted. Correct. Okay, here's another theory in circulation. That Boer Cup residents painted their houses to distinguish them from each other when they stumbled home drunk after partying in town. With all those mosques and those Muslim aunties ready to give claps. <laughs> Please, man. Exactly. Then there's a story that Nelson Mandela visited the Boer Cup after his release from prison in the early 1990s. And residents were so captivated by the possibilities of his Rainbow Nation vision that they painted their houses to honor it. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I don't buy it. These people have just emerged from decades of being ground down economically by apartheid. <laughs> And now all of a sudden they got money to paint their houses for Madiba. <laughs> that is pretty much what Mohammed Kronewald said. That the brightly colored houses basically have to be a modern phenomenon because people simply wouldn't have had the money for extensive paint jobs. Mohammed says that as far as he can establish, people in the Burkamp started painting their houses maybe maximum 40 years ago, maybe even more recently. In only about for the last 40 years, I think, as people become you know, could maintain their homes, kids becoming now out of university and uh, people's lives economically start to change. People then started to restore their homes and just everyone just started to paint the color. But there's no historical evidence to say that Burkhardt has always been a colorful area like this. It was simply people's imagination and creativity um, over the last 40 years. Okay, but it seems like, you know, this this topic of brightly coloured houses isn't abstract anymore. It really does seem like Ulox is going to have to sponsor them. Because we know now that Boerkop is designated to be a heritage zone. And yep. that means that residents are going to be expected to maintain their houses in a very particular way. Not a lot of people know that. That's right. And I was thinking exactly that when I was reading the city of Cape Town's new regulations. And they stipulate, quote... Going forward, property owners in the Boer Cup are expected to conserve the area's historical character by doing alterations that are in keeping with the character and style of the building by retaining as many of the original and heritage characteristics as possible when altering or adding to a historical building, end quote. Now, the city of Cape Town makes it sound ever so simple there. But I think we've learned that ideas about historical character and original characteristics are actually anything but straightforward when it comes to the Burkhop. You've been listening to the story of Burkhop. This was part one of a three-part series. The rest are available on livepodcast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Now you can listen to part two of the series. We'll be looking at the famous old businesses of the Boer Cup and how they are being progressively pushed out by hipster joints offering vegan ice cream and rooftop yoga. The story of Boer Cup is brought to you by EWN with sound engineering and editing by Gavin Dazel, presented and produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and Rebecca Davis. Our thanks to Beat Bangers featuring youngster CPT for the use of the song Boer Cup, available wherever you get your music.